Hey, it's Kristen. You're listening to Rational in Portland. Thanks for joining us on Rational in Portland. Today, my guest is Tom Wolf. Tom lives in the San Francisco Bay Area, and as a person in addiction recovery and someone who was formerly homeless, he's extremely knowledgeable about the kinds of crises that we're facing here in Portland, Oregon. Tom and I connected on Twitter, I think over our mutual admiration of Michael Schellenberger. Michael Schellenberger ran for governor of California. He wrote the book San Francisco. And one thing that's so great is Michael Schellenberger is friends with and connected with friends of this show, Andrea Suarez and Kevin Dahlgren. Go back and listen to their episode if you haven't heard it already. They are forces of nature. You can find Kevin and Andrea's episode on this podcast on June 12th. It's season three, episode four. In this episode, we talk about Tom Wolf's background, his experiences with drugs and addiction, what that has taught him, and the kinds of recovery projects he's involved with now. You can find him and information about him on his website, tomwolf.org, T-O-M-W-O-L-F.org. T-Wolf Recovery is where he's at on Twitter, T-W-O-L-F. R-E-C-O-V-E-R-Y on Twitter. You can contact me at Rational in PDX on Twitter. Tom also has a YouTube channel called Voices of Recovery. You can find a link to that on his website. I admire Tom so much. He has been able to pull himself out of addiction and homelessness, and he has so much wisdom to share with us. Please enjoy my guest, Tom Wolf. Tom, welcome. So excited to have you on Rational in Portland. Should I call you Tom or T-Wolf? That's kind of my Twitter nickname. I mean, everybody knows my name's Tom. I go by Tom mostly, Tom Wolf. Um, and so everybody knows who T-Wolf is. So uh, sometimes when I'm in the city, people see me go, hey, T-Wolf, you know, but they know. There's only one of me. Not too many people named Wolf. I want to be sensitive about the terminology during this conversation. Do we refer to you as an addict or is there a different terminology we should be using? Yeah, that's how I refer to myself. I'm a re- I refer to myself as a recovering addict, uh, which is really funny because people are really working hard to try to not use the word addict anymore. There's this whole push from the harm reduction community. Uh, to not use that term, they want to say people with substance use disorder or substance use disorder or people in recovery. And the people in recovery term is fine also, uh, but I identify myself as a recovering addict. That's who I am. What substance or substances were you addicted to? Uh, I was addicted to opioids. So started off with oxycodone and then it spiraled into heroin and then fentanyl. But I also used crack cocaine as well. Tom, how did your addiction begin? So in, well, when did I start substance abuse would be the more accurate question because I used to drink, you know, a weekend warrior like most people, Friday night, go to happy hour, that kind of stuff. Uh, Back in the 80s when I was growing up, you know, I experimented with weed and cocaine, acid, uh, but nothing that could be considered an addiction because my life never became unmanageable and I just did it recreationally. It wasn't until I was already a grown man, until I was 40, uh, 2015, so I was 45 years old, um, when I had surgery on my foot and I was prescribed oxycodone for the pain and they gave me a, a 30-day supply of 10 milligram oxycodone pills uh, to take home. And uh, I didn't use those as directed, I guess you could say, and that's, uh, that's where my journey into addiction and homelessness began. This wasn't during the period of time that the... Sacklers and and Purdue were pushing oxycodone, oxycontin, that kind of thing during the dope sick um, era that is documented in Beth Macy's book. Is it? 
No, this was already uh, you know, kind of after that, I guess you could say. They, they started to kind of restrict the prescription of opioids more in the last maybe three or four years, really. Uh, but prior to that, you could still get opioids. But that time with the Sacklers and pain clinics is the 90s into the early 2000s. So I was already on the back end of that. But the surgery I had was invasive enough that it required pain management when I left the hospital. And, uh, you know, they gave me 120 pills to, to take. And I, I still remember, you know, I would take one for the pain. And you have to understand the surgery I had was bad. They had to basically break my foot and reset it. And I had two titanium screws inserted into my foot. Uh, so I was in a boot and I was on crutches and it was it was super painful. Um, and they gave me the, these oxycodone tablets and, you know, I would take one and it would kind of kill the pain a little, not really. So one day I decided to take two because I was hurting and uh, I got loopy. Uh, and then one day I made the fateful decision to take three at the same time, which is 30 milligrams. And that was kind of like the that that kind of when I hit that threshold, that's when everything changed, because all of a sudden I felt this euphoria kind of come over me along with the pain being gone. But all my personal issues that I was having, too. And at the time, I was having financial problems. Uh, my marriage wasn't going so well. Uh, all of those issues went away. Uh, and um, and for about three hours, I just felt great, like I was on top of the world. And uh, I spent literally the next five years, more or less, not, not quite five, four plus years chasing that high. So obviously, there are people who have surgeries even really extensive and serious, complicated surgeries that go on opiates, opioids for pain management, and they don't necessarily become addicted. What do you think it is about you and and other addicts who have these surgeries, get prescribed opioids, and they just can't get off of them? They become addicted. That's a, it's a great question, and I don't think there's any one specific answer, but I, I do believe that peop, some people have a predisposition to addiction. Uh, addiction runs in my family. I come from a family of alcoholics. As an example, my grandfather was an alcoholic. My dad was an alcoholic. I have a sister and a brother that are in recovery from alcoholism. Uh, so for me, my addiction just manifested with opioids as opposed to alcohol, as an example. But another main driver of addiction, too, is trauma, early childhood trauma, or, you know, in my case, it was, you know, significant, a series of significant emotional events. It's like I was, I was you know, in bankruptcy financially, uh, my house, you know, I was worried about keeping my house. I had two small kids. Um, my marriage wasn't going well. Uh, so you know, all those things kind of put together makes it a little bit easier for you to make a decision to self-medicate as opposed to not. Uh, and that's kind of what happened to me. So I think it was a combination of both things. So did you have early childhood trauma or were you just using that as a general example? Yeah, well, you know, for me, I, I didn't really grow up with a ton of early childhood trauma. I think most people, I think if you looked at my life growing up, I had a pretty decent life. Both my parents were married and I had a stable home, um, whatnot. But I, I say the early, early childhood trauma more as in a gener generality and that many people that have become addicted to drugs and then many people that end up homeless on the street and are addicted to drugs, if you go and ask them, what is one of the main things that drove you to the situation that you're at now, they'll talk about early childhood trauma. They'll talk about abuse, uh, you know, sexual assault, um, you know, the, the child abuse factor, um, the fact that maybe their parents were also drug addicts uh, contributed. So there's a lot of different things. So I think, you know, but that doesn't apply in everyone's case. For me, it was more of for lack of a better term, I was having a midlife crisis. You know, things were not turning out the way that I had thought they were going to turn out in the middle of my life. Uh, I was, I was, you know, I, two, I had these two small kids. I was at a dead end job that was a high stress job working with domestic violence victims um, for the city and county of San Francisco. Uh, the the woman that I had been with for twenty plus years, our marriage was breaking down. Uh, we were deep in debt financially. Uh, you know, we took a hit with the whole 2008 economic downturn, and we're still trying to recover from that. So, you know, those things may seem like, well, all of us face those things. Yes, all of us face those things, and that's where the predisposition to addiction comes in for me, in that 
I probably have this genetic predisposition to self-medicate because I come from a family of alcoholics and that's kind of how I learned how to address this stuff. So when you put it that way, then it makes a little more sense. Did you realize right away when you first started taking the pain medication after your surgery that it just felt so good you were in trouble? Uh, that's another really great question. So no, not right at first. It, at first it was more like, wow, this feels amazing. I want to keep feeling this way. So let me keep taking this amount because this is where, this is the level of numbness that I want to maintain for as long as possible. And so I just continue to take those three pills. And what happens is that over time, your tolerance builds up and the three pills weren't enough. So then I started getting creative. I started crushing up the pills and snorting them, right? I started uh, taking four or five. And the next thing you know, the pills are starting to run out. And so I start to try to wean myself off of the pills and I start feeling crappy. I started feeling what we now know as withdrawal or being dope sick in that I was getting, I had the sweats, uh, I had the chills at the same time, uh, I had nausea, I had stomach issues, uh, and I felt like my skin was crawling. Uh, and most of all, I was obsessing. I was just thinking about how can I get more? What's going to happen to me if I can't get more? I feel terrible. And so, it, and so I actually tried to get more. I tried to get a refill. You know, After about 10 days of a 30-day supply, I'm calling the pharmacy trying to get a refill and the doctor. And they're like, you've you got to be kidding me, right? You can't, you can't have a refill. And uh, so then I made a kind of a fateful decision at that point. I said, well, I, I don't want to feel this way anymore. I can't stand the withdrawals. I can't handle it. Uh, so I actually started looking for where I could buy pills on the street in San Francisco. And I found, uh, of, all pl of, of all places, I went on YouTube and I found some references to a place called Pill Hill in San Francisco, which is the corner of Golden Gate and Leavenworth in the Tenderloin District. And uh, I proceeded to drive down there with my boot on my foot. And sure enough, I found five or six different people selling a variety of different opioids on the street. And mind you, this was in 2015 before illicit fentanyl hit the streets of San Francisco. So there, were actually, there was actually real oxycodone on the street. And I started purchasing 30 milligram Roxy's. Uh, they also sold Percocets, Opanas, and I eventually ended up uh, settling on uh, what they call OP80s, which are 80 milligram oxycodone pills. And at the peak of my addiction to these pills, I was taking seven of those a day, so 560 milligrams of oxycodone daily, just to feel normal, not even to be high anymore. I was chasing the high, not quite, quite getting there, uh, but my tolerance had built up so much and my addiction had deepened that I was taking a really dangerously high amount of oxycodone to survive. Is it fair to say that your brain was hijacked by drugs, by opioids? I think it absolutely is fair to say my brain was hijacked by addiction. So that's the thing. Addiction is a disease. It's a disease of the mind that actually hijacks uh, your survival instincts and implants itself as a, as a basic survival instinct in the most, most basic part of your brain. So in the most basic part of your brain, you have your basic survival instincts, you, you food, uh, fight, and sex. Those are the three primary things in your basic survival instincts. Well, addiction kind of implants itself as the fourth one so that you start treating your addiction with the same priority as you treat food which is nuts, right? It's illogical. And that's the whole point is that addiction itself, the disease of addiction, uh, if left untreated, can hijack your ability to think logically so that every decision that I was making at that point had to have an end result of me getting more drugs. Now, not every addiction does that, right? There are other factors that play into that, like the amount of dopamine that it releases in your brain and affect those your, your ability to withstand the pull of addiction. You don't see people that are addicted to caffeine out on the street or robbing Walgreens to, for coffee, right? You don't see, so you have to keep it in perspective and understand, you know, that it matters what kind of drug that, is you, that it is you use. Meth is another one where it releases tremendously high amounts of dopamine in your brain, which is the pleasure chemical in your brain. And, uh, and when you stop using it, it drops precipitously low and you go into kind of a dark spiral. So you want more, and that's what kind of leads into and feeds the addiction. How much time elapsed between the point where you were buying pills in the tenderloin and the point when you became homeless? 
uh, about three years. Everyone's journey is different, right? So I was able to maintain my habit of buying pills. I mean, you have to understand the pills are $30 a pill on the street. So I made a couple of drug dealers very, very rich because I spent uh, at least a hundred grand on pills. I emptied, I mean, I wiped out my savings account. I cashed out my 401k. I stopped paying my mortgage for months on end until my home was getting ready to be auctioned off in foreclosure. You have to understand, these are the, the lengths that I was going to, and I was hiding it all from my wife. I mean, I think she knew, but denial is a real, really powerful thing for uh, friends and family members of those affected with addiction. Uh, and so I don't think she wanted to believe that things were getting this bad. In my experience with a family member who's addicted, it's probably, I mean, it's just so painful to admit. It, it is painful, and we don't talk enough about how much... Uh, uh, loved ones of, of someone struggling with addiction, we don't talk enough about them and how they are affected by someone's addiction and the, the damage, the trauma that I caused. And I have to own that, you know, and that's one of the things I do own in my recovery is that I did these things to my wife and my kids. And I'm sorry. And I've tried to make what they call living amends in recovery to my wife and kids for that. Um, and and it, it works, you know, I mean, granted, my wife is a saint because she gave me another chance after some counseling, you know, but uh, and it doesn't always work for everybody. But it doesn't mean that you shouldn't still try to make those living amends and try to do the right thing in recovery to try to undo or help heal from some of the damage that you caused while you were in your addiction. Despite the fact that it was a disease, you still have to own it. That's the accountability piece that has been being systematically removed uh, within drug policy across the United States and across North America. And we're seeing the results play out in real time right now with the with the increase in, in overdose deaths and the increase in drug use uh, across the United States. Yeah, I'm sure in Oregon, you know about our drug decriminalization measure, Measure 110. And that was sold to us by a national organization called the Drug Policy Alliance. Have you been following what's been going on here in Oregon, particularly in Portland, since Measure 110 passed at all? I mean, things are out of control here. In just the last year, our overdose deaths in Oregon increased 41% compared to a 16% increase nationwide, and that's from OHSU March 23rd, 2022. So that's our Oregon Health Sciences University. I've been uh, following very closely and, uh, you know... The Drug Policy Alliance basically was not truthful. I don't know how else to say it. They, they pushed this upon the people of Oregon based solely on ideology and limited data and, and evidence to show that it works in the way that it is being implemented now. What they're doing in Portugal is completely different than what they do in Oregon. And for them to equate Measure 110 with the Portugal model was frankly irresponsible. And Oregon really should either do one of two things, either turn back and repeal Measure 110 immediately or actually do what they said that they were going to do and, and truly invest in a treatment on demand system and a healthcare system that can help people on the street, but also invest in that modicum of dissuasion, because that's the term they use in Portugal. They have something called the Commission for the Dissuasion of Addiction, where someone who's an addict on the street goes in front of this commission and actually faces a social worker, a judge, uh, family members and whatnot, and try and they try to coerce that individual into accepting treatment. So the whole notion that they don't mandate people to treatment in Oregon is, is false. They do. And, you know, they're not, you know, the Drug Policy Alliance didn't tell the people of Oregon the whole story. And they did this straight up as an ideological power grab to, in, to, to put in place what they want eventually, which is full, not just decriminalization, but legalization of illicit drugs. And we're seeing it play out again in real time in Oregon. Measure 110 is obviously a disaster. Oregon is, is you know, percentage wise, is literally leading the way in the country in overdose deaths. Um, and it's just become a free for all. Factually, it's a free for all. And, uh, and, the treatment system, which was supposed to step in and provide all these treatment beds, has been, you know, just grounded in controversy because of how long it's taken for money to get to them. There's all these different things. So it was a train wreck from the start. Uh, and unfortunately, the good people of Oregon have to now suffer for it. Well, and, and we're all suffering. I mean, obviously, the addicts and the people who need the treatment 
are are suffering the most, arguably. But it, here's the thing: when we passed Measure One Ten, what happened was, and I think unbeknownst to a lot of us, like like me who voted for it, thinking it was going to reclassify drug crimes and thinking it was going to provide access to treatment, and by that I mean sober living, detox, rehab, medically assisted treatment, uh, such as as methadone or, or suboxone services administered by a physician. Instead, what we've now learned, and I had Mike Marshall on here on this show from Oregon Recovers, and he helped explain all of this to me. So if anybody's interested in hearing what Mike had to say, please go back and listen to that episode. But what happened is we put in place a hotline for people to call if they're given a ticket for drug possession, if they're given a ticket. And the police will tell you, you know, they're too busy dealing with homicides. So a lot of these people are not given tickets. But if they get a ticket by agreeing to a substance use screening, they can get a $100 fine waived and be referred to treatment services if they wanted. Now, if you're splayed out in the gutter and you get a ticket for $100, do you think that's going to register with you at all? Probably not. So what is happening? Well, there aren't a lot of calls. There aren't a lot of tickets being written for drug possession. Fewer than 100 people have called this hotline, and fewer than half have asked for resources. Now, this is all from the Lund Report, and that's a, a, a news service that our Oregon Public Broadcasting, one of our news outlets, uh, relies on in addition to other news outlets, and they, they do researched articles like this article that I'm referring to that I'll link in the show notes. So what the Lund Report says is, here's the thing, when people are calling this hotline, they're not asking for residential treatment or detox. And if they do, they're waitlisted because those services are not part of Measure 110. Measure 110 is about peer services, harm reduction, housing, and low barrier outpatient treatment. And I think most people, my guess is yourself too, Mike Marshall certainly said that what people recovering from things like meth and and opioids need is a specialized treatment program. And the system doesn't offer long-term recovery that people need to get their ravaged brains clear. And if we had some kind of funding targeted to something like meth or opioid treatment, you know, that would be different, but that's, that is absolutely not what we're doing here. And instead, we're giving this millions and millions of dollars out to these nonprofits, really, these, these quote-unquote organizations contributing to this industrial complex revolving around homelessness and addiction and nonprofits. And, and we're just asking them to deal with it in their own way under this rubric of peer services and harm reduction. So it's basically glorified needle exchanges. So, so look, you bring up like so many good points. I don't know where to start. Uh, so, 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 first, <laughs> so, so first of all, um, the, the big, I don't know if you want to call it a boondoggle or whatever, whatever you want to call it. The, the big thing here is that, the people that were pushing Measure 110 had completely redefined the definition of what is treatment, okay? And the harm reduction folks have redefined what is treatment. They're even trying to redefine what is recovery, okay? The problem is, is that nobody told the vast majority of the voting public in Oregon what that new definition of treatment is. So just like you said, most people thought that treatment meant, oh, wow, yeah, they're going to go to detox and they're going to go to an inpatient treatment facility. No, 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 no. The new definition of treatment, according to the folks that were pushing Measure 110 and the Drug Policy Alliance, is safe consumption, or supervised consumption sites. I don't want to say safe because there's nothing safe about them. Supervised consumption sites, uh, safe smoking kits, clean needles, foil, straws, and pipes. Those are all considered treatment in their eyes. Uh, and while I agree that there's some treatment possibly there, that doesn't meet the classic definition of what most people understand to be treatment. And they didn't, they, they deliberately, deliberately, I would suggest, did not inform the public of that change in definition. Therefore, the majority of people went ahead and voted because they thought they were being compassionate. Well, the reality is, is that 
with Measure 110 in place, if I get caught with three grams of fentanyl, which is enough to kill me, right? Or if I get caught with, uh, with a bunch of meth uh, and I'm a drug user on the street, there's no more accountability in that, look, I ended up going, getting arrested six times when I was on the street and I had to sit in county jail for three months. And that was the, that was kind of the catalyst for me finding, seeking and finding recovery, right? And most people that you talk to in the harm reduction world will say that, you know, mandated treatment or coerced treatment doesn't work. Well, actually studies show that the effectiveness of mandated treatment or coerced treatment versus voluntary treatment, the outcomes are about the same. Um, so then you have to start looking deeper than that. So you have to look beyond that and look at harms to the community, right? Uh, not just the overdose deaths, but harms to the community. So when you have a tent encampment that's near a school, what kind of harm is that doing to the community? And when you go into that tent encampment and you find needles and pipes and drugs in that community, what kind of harm is that doing to the surrounding community? And what is our obligation as the larger community to do something about that? Uh, and that's really where the debate is raging. And unfortunately, Measure 110, for all of its efforts to be compassionate, has taken away virtually every tool that we used to use, which is law enforcement primarily, to address those issues. And it's created a free-for-all. There's no other way to say it. It's a free-for-all. You can't look me in the eye and say that things are better now after Measure 110 than they were before it got passed in Oregon because it's not. Period. The end, end of story. So for anyone to suggest that it's beautiful and it's working is actually full of BS and they're just protecting their narrative because they don't want to lose any face and they don't want to admit that maybe, just maybe, they put cart before horse and they moved too quickly on this and didn't think more pragmatically about real solutions to getting people off the street and getting them healthy and getting people into recovery. What would you say to somebody who argues, well, sure, it's not successful now, but that's because these organizations and nonprofits haven't been fully funded and aren't up and running yet? Uh, I would say go, go tell the families of the people who have died of drug overdose that. I would say go to, their, to, to all the extra 41% increase in overdose deaths in Oregon this last year. I would say go knock on those people's families' doors and tell them, oh, you know, sorry that your, your, your son died, but, you know, things are going to get better because we're finally getting this money out to the drug treatment programs. And again, what is that definition of treatment? What is that definition of treatment? Somebody actually told me, I was at a meeting in the, the Board of Supervisors in San Francisco, which is like our city council, uh, about the Department of Public Health's new plan to address overdose deaths in the city, which we can talk about later if you want. And, and I sat there and I said, you know, in this whole presentation that you made today, you never mentioned the word recovery. And in the whole 72-page presentation that they released, they only mentioned recovery three times in the whole presentation. I said, where is the recovery? Where is it? And somebody actually stood up after me and said, recovery begins the, the moment somebody walks into a supervised consumption site to use drugs. Think about that. Their definition of recovery has now moved to where you walk into a supervised consumption site to use drugs. Is that this linkage center you've been talking about on Twitter? Yeah, it, it's still open, the Tenderloin Center. That is that is our supervised consumption site, even though they won't admit it's a supervised consumption site. Uh, and it's an unmitigated disaster, and I'll be happy to tell you all about that, too. Didn't London Breed, the mayor, finally say she was going to shut this thing down? She is. It is shutting down at the end of this year. Uh, the, the reason why she's shutting it down is because of the ambiguity that's what I, I was just quoted in the local paper here talking about that, about why are all these Department of Public Health and all these harm reduction folks being so ambiguous about what they want to do? They refuse to call this tenderloin center that was opened last year, uh, earlier this year, in response to this emergency declaration that our mayor in San Francisco did about the conditions in our tenderloin neighborhood, which is ground zero for all our drugs and homelessness here in this city. Um, and they opened the center to link people to treatment, so they called it the Linkage Center. And it was supposed to be a place where people could go to get a meal, to maybe get a shower, to get some clothing, uh, talk to somebody about housing, to fill out a housing assessment form and get on the list for housing, potentially find shelter, maybe a hotel room temporarily. Uh, but what they didn't tell us is that they were going to open up this courtyard right outside of it, fence it off, and have a supervised consumption site. They didn't tell anybody that. 
And so when we found out that it was open and people were actually going in there and sitting there and using drugs being while someone from a nonprofit that's not a doctor or a nurse was standing there holding the thing of Narcan, watching them uh, overdose on fentanyl. Uh, and then we went and actually called out the mayor and called out the city and said, hey, you guys are running a supervised consumption site. They actually told us, no, we're not. We're just creating low, a low barrier place where people are allowed to use drugs. And I said, well, that's a supervised consumption site. Well, no, it's not. It's not a supervised consumption site. Publicly, they said it's not a supervised consumption site. So what is it then if it's not a supervised consumption site? Well, the only conclusion that I could draw is that it is a modern day opium den, like the kind that they used to have in the Old West. And we actually have one operating right smack dab in the middle of downtown San Francisco on Market Street at our busiest business corridor. It's just sitting right there. And of course, this is at the taxpayer's expense. Yeah, it costs the city $29 million to run this center. 29 million bucks for a year, and they're shutting it down. And now instead, they're talking about opening what they call wellness hubs, which is another ambiguous term, uh, which are little mini safe supervised injection sites that they're going to open throughout the city. Uh, But they won't call them supervised injection sites, but that's what they are. So they need to stop hiding behind all this fancy terminology that confuses and misleads people and just say what it is that you're going to do and then let the public react accordingly and have public discourse about this instead of doing it all kind of in the shadows, behind everybody's back, at tremendous cost to the city and county of San Francisco and its taxpayers, and then telling us that... that, that, uh, that this isn't actually what it is that they're doing. It's very, very confusing. It's ambiguous. And it downright needs to be called out. And that's part of what I do in my advocacy is I call it out. And you're great at that. You've got 13.6 thousand Twitter followers. And I love following you because you document all this stuff in real time or you're in contact with people documenting it and you're sharing what they're finding. And like with this linkage center, it was a... It was just a chicken wire fence around all these people completely gorked out on drugs, smoking crack, smoking fentanyl pills, injecting themselves, unconscious, lying unconscious. And, you know, this is a, again, it's a chain link fence. I mean, you could see through it. So you did a very good job documenting what exactly was going on over there. So it was, it was this chain link fence. Uh, so everyone could see what was happening inside. And then uh, I... Well, Michael Schellenberger was documenting this thing too, right? He he went ahead and kind of he kind of did an expose on it, you know. And so then they put up this black tarp around the fence, so you couldn't see. Uh, but then what was happening now is that they poked holes in the fence, so the drug dealers can come up and sell people drugs through the fence. So you l- literally have open drug sales happening be- on the fence between this supervised consumption site and the street, and everyone just kind of shrugs and they're like, "Yeah, okay, well, you know." That, that's just the way it is, and they let it go. And it's just, it's nuts to me that we put our focus and our money into that. And while entries into, into inpatient drug treatment in San Francisco have been on the decline for the last three years, it's really shocking and it's sad. Uh, and it really makes me question the priorities of our public health department. I understand that they're trying to save lives. I understand the concept, I do. Okay, about naloxone and the whole, even the idea of supervised consumption sites. I myself am kind of ambivalent about it. But why are you trying to hide it? Why are you being, why the ambiguity about it? Why can't you just come out and say, this is what you're going to do? I, I don't understand that part. And then I don't understand why with, you know, the next, this new three-year plan that our Department of Public Health is doing, that they sent these benchmarks of they're, they're going to, re- they want to reduce overdose deaths by 15%. That's it? Just 15%? So you're okay with 500 people a year dying in San Francisco instead of 600. Uh, that, that's, I take issue with that. And also over the next three years, they're going to add a whopping 120 drug treatment beds. In three years, 120 beds. While they're spending, they have a budget of $596 million a year to do this. They're only adding 100 beds. We should be adding like a thousand beds. And that's what kills me is that there's private organizations in San Francisco, like the Salvation Army. On private donations alone, they're going to add a thousand beds of transitional housing for people in recovery in this town in the next three to five years. Whereas the Department of Public Health is adding is adding 120 beds because they're wasting all their money on 
needles, pipes, foil, straws, uh, uh, wellness hubs, all this stuff. And some of it is good, but man, you could spend that money so much better uh, by actively promoting recovery and working with our police and criminal justice system to find a balance like they have in Europe to get people off the street and into drug treatment. Tell me what you know about the Portugal model, because obviously, although Measure 110 sold us on this idea that Oregon was going to be the Portugal model, you're saying, and I, I've read, it's absolutely nothing like that. Well, I, I've studied it, but I also uh, got an opportunity to talk to Dr. Zhao Gulao, who is kind of the father of this whole entire movement in Portugal. He's, he's the guy that, that came up with the idea and implemented it. He's basically like Portugal's drugs are, right? So I, I had a conversation with him. He's the source of the Portugal model. And I, I sat there and we, we asked him point blank questions about, do you guys still arrest drug dealers in Portugal? And he was like, yes, we arrest them. We don't allow any drug trafficking or drug dealing on the street. If you're caught selling drugs on the street, you get arrested and you're held accountable. Uh, do you mandate people into treatment? His answer was, well, mandate's a strong word. What we do is we arrest, we'll, we'll cite someone on the street for using and tell them they have to come to this commission for the dissuasion of addiction tomorrow. And if they show up, we try to urge them into treatment. If they deny treatment, if they get arrested again, uh, each time the, the, it, it becomes more punitive each time. And after like three times, you actually get mandated into drug treatment. That's how they do it in Portugal. So it's like an intervention. Yeah, it's an intervention, exactly. Whereas here in San Francisco, we have this kind of weird libertarian streak running through our progressive policies around drugs and homelessness. Uh, and I think it's the same in Oregon, uh, where we're like, you know, it's your body autonomy. You can do what you want. Even if you die right in front of us, that's your right. And if we intervene, we're violating your civil liberties. And that's really a bunch of BS because I would be dead right now if I had not been intervened upon. I'm convinced of that because I had already, I was already switching to fentanyl on the street. Fentanyl was hitting the streets hard in 2018 when I was out there. And one of the last few times that I used, I was smoking fent, fent already. And I just remember walking down the street so high that I couldn't control my leg movements. And I kept bumping into the wall as I would walk down the street. And then I lost consciousness. And when I woke up two hours later, I was slouched in a doorway on the street. And uh, my, my legs were asleep and I was in a lot of pain because I was just stuck in that position. And I could have easily not, not woken up at that point. And so with that, I'll say that there's a subset of people on the street that are struggling with addiction that require intervention. They just do. I was one of those people. And so while not everybody requires intervention, there's a subset of people that do, especially the people that are committing crimes to support their addiction. They have to be held accountable. And that doesn't mean throw them in prison. That means maybe put them in jail for a minute to de and give them some medically assisted treatment like buprenorphine or suboxone to detox and then get them into an inpatient treatment program. Because inpatient treatment for me ended my homelessness. I went to a six-month inpatient program in San Francisco that ended my homelessness. And that program, mind you, was free. It didn't cost me a dollar. It was free. So I had a choice of going back to the Tenderloin and hanging out on the street, shooting dope, sitting in jail, or going to this inpatient program where I was housed, clothed, fed, given counseling, and given, given uh, a job, job opportunity down the road eventually after I completed the program. So those are my choices. So it's really not about mandated treatment. It's about choices for people. It's like, you commit a crime, you got to do the time, right? That's the thing. And so now we're, but now we've gotten into this whole thing where we're holding people to different standards of law based on what it is that they did. So it's like, you know, if you're a drug addict and you steal someone's car, we're not going to hold you to the same account as if you uh, stole someone's car because you're not a drug addict. You're actually going to get punished more. And I, I don't think that that's fair in that we still have to have that person be held accountable and go through the justice system, but what happens to them in the justice system should be different. That's where we can diverge and have that person go to detox and drug treatment and hopefully find a pathway back on, on the road to recovery. So did you end up like in drug court and were you sentenced to rehab or how did that actually work? 
Yeah, so I, I didn't even make it to drug court. I was sitting in county jail because I'd been arrested six times. So look, part of the way I supported my drug habit on the street is I became a mule for the drug dealers out here. You have to understand that in San Francisco, we have three to 500 organized drug dealers on the streets that work in shifts, morning shift, swing shift, night shift, graveyard shift, selling on the street corner, brazenly wide open, 24-7, seven days a week, right? Uh, and we know that. The whole city knows it. The cops know it. The politicians know it. The citizens know it, everything. And we've just allowed it to explode over the last couple of years. And it has grown precipitously. So now we have entire blocks that are just taken over by drug dealers and people around them using drugs. So the way I supported my drug habit is back in 2018, it was the same thing, just less drug dealers. And I was holding drugs for them as their mule. And I got caught. I got caught up by the police. They did a sting one day, and I was holding six gym socks full of drugs for, like, six different drug dealers. And I got busted with four and a half ounces of heroin. And, you know, this is where people argue about, oh, the war on drugs. You know, I got arrested with those drugs. I thought I was going to go to prison. If you ever watched The Wire or something, I thought I was going down, you know. Uh, I spent 16 hours in county jail. And they released me on my own recognizance, no bail, right back out to the street. So there's no war on drugs in San Francisco. There hasn't been one for decades here. I don't know what this, all these people talk about. The war on drugs, to them, anything less than legalization of, of all drugs is the war on drugs. So you have to understand context. Um, so this is the problem that we face in the city. We have, you know, last year the police pulled 26 kilos of fentanyl off the streets here in 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 just the Tenderloin neighborhood. This year, they've already pulled 55 kilos of fentanyl off the streets here, and the year's not even over yet. We have this huge drug problem, and um, you know, without that kind of intervention, I'd be dead. So I went to jail, and I had a choice. I could have gone to treatment or keep sitting in jail, and my brother actually stepped in and helped me out and said, look, I'll bail you out if you agree to go to this rehab. That was before even I made it to drug court, and I agreed to go, and that changed my life. Were you only in rehab once? It only took one stint in rehab. It took six stints in jail and then one stint in rehab. Uh, I did it, but I did a six month inpatient rehab. I didn't do a 28 day program or a 90 day program. I was there for six months. Uh, and then after that, I, ha I went and moved into what they call a, a sober living environment, a sober home. I lived in that after that as well to help further my recovery. How long were you there? Uh, I, was th I was there for five, four or five months. I went to one, then I moved out and then I went to another one and I stayed there for several months. Uh, and then eventually I, um, uh, lived with my parents for a while. And then after some counseling with my wife and my kids, I actually reconciled with them. And now I'm back home with my wife and kids. Well, congratulations. That's totally amazing. Do you know how long it takes in rehab, like what is the data on how long somebody should be staying in rehab before they can assume that they can reasonably get off these kinds of hard drugs? Well, so look, people that go to like a 90 day program after two years, the statistics are somewhere between 10 and 20% of them staying in recovery, staying clean and sober. Uh, when someone goes through a six month program and then goes through another two to three years of what they call transitional housing, where they are living somewhere like a sober living environment, uh, the percentage of those people that have stayed in recovery are about 90%. So it takes you know more than 28 days, it takes more than three months, it, takes more, it took me more than six months. Uh, and I'm still working on my recovery today. Uh, but it takes time to go from losing everything, okay, and I mean everything, to having a life again. It takes a minute. Like there were barriers that you take for granted that I had never experienced before. Like I, I didn't realize I had ruined my bank rating when I, in my addiction because I was stealing my dad's checks and cashing them fraudulently to get money for drugs. Uh, so I couldn't open a bank account for the first two years of my recovery. I couldn't open a bank account. I was truly disenfranchised. Even with an ID and everything, I, I, I have a lifetime ban at Bank of America, it turns out. I didn't even know that. You know, these are barriers that people don't don't think about that that are real for people in recovery that they have to overcome. My credit was trash. I had to repair my credit. Um, 
uh, I lost out on a job because when I had applied for this job and they were offering me the job right after I got out of rehab, they did a background check and all my court cases were still pending. Um, these are barriers. And those barriers can drive people to relapse, right? So it's really important that you have a strong support system and recovery system around you. Um, you know that that may mean meetings for you, maybe twelve-step meetings, uh, maybe a sponsor, or maybe a therapist or a counselor, someone that you can talk to to help you work through some of these issues that you face early on in your recovery. Uh, and then you, um, and then when you become someone like me that has decided to kind of uh, shed the anonymity of recovery and speak out and be vocal about it and put myself out there, you face stigma. Um, but you face, it's funny, the, the people that I face stigma from are from the harm reduction folks. They're the ones that stigmatize me because I advocate for recovery and for, and for treatment as opposed to needles and supervised consumption sites. So they're like, you know, I've been accused by them of being a drug dealer. I've been accused by them of being still a drug addict. Um, I've been, you know, called all kinds of other names, but the, the bottom line is that they're happy for you. And I posted about this on Twitter today. They're happy about you being in recovery, but as soon as you diverge from what their model is for people that are struggling with addiction on the street, they stigmatize you right away. And I find that to be very hypocritical. And I really wish they would stop doing that because it's counterproductive. And sorry I rambled about that, but I, I'm very passionate about that. It's like, if you want to speak out about your recovery, more power to you. And who are you, because you wrote some peer-reviewed paper and you have some letters after your name, who are you to tell me that I can't speak up about this and that I don't have a right to say what I believe in? I think that that's a bunch of BS. So what would their argument be that the rehab that you did, the six months intensive doesn't work? And so we, we need to focus on harm reduction if we're going to save lives. And then the second question is, the political wins in San Francisco, at least, not here in Portland, certainly, uh, with the exception of the election of Renee Gonzalez to city council, but in San Francisco seem to be changing. And so maybe people are looking around and using their eyes and ears and seeing that this harm reduction stuff is not working. The overdoses are going up and up and up. So yes, some people would say that. So it's, it's weird. Like the harm reduction umbrella covers a lot of different things. You have the more radical folks that would say, well, you know, abstinence treatment based treatment doesn't work. 12 step, uh, recovery doesn't work. Uh, then they'll cite a couple of papers that have come out to say this is the evidence that it doesn't work. And then I'll come back to them and say, well, you know, uh, like over, over the last 85 years, at least 30 million people have found recovery through Alcoholics Anonymous, and it's the most successful recovery model on the planet that has ever been invented. And then they get mad and they say, well, that's just anecdotal evidence. And I just laugh because I'm like, you know, evidence is evidence, folks, you know. Uh, and I'm not sitting here to defend one way or the other, but I'm just saying, look, we're in this massive crisis where 100,000 people are dying every year in the United States. And while I acknowledge, and this is why I'm kind of neutral about consumption sites, it's that while I acknowledge users are going to use, so we, it's probably better to let them use in a safe place, there needs to be a whole other suite of services attached to that consumption site like detox beds next door where you can literally walk from the consumption site into the detox and begin your process of recovery instead of it just being a standalone wellness hub where you can just show up four or five times a day shoot dope and then go right back out to your life on the street that's not that's not really helping you're, you're just kind of prolonging the inevitable at that point especially if you're using fentanyl so if you want to have these consumption sites let's be like europe where you have ample detox beds, where you have ample shelter beds, where you actually have a real pathway to get permanent housing, where you have a real pathway to drug treatment, you have ample inpatient treatment beds. Uh, and I know that they have universal health care in Europe, and the drug culture is different in Europe than it is in the United States. But we have to start somewhere. And I think that what's sad is that there's become this like pitched battle between people like me that are in recovery that are abstinent versus the harm reduction folks that are advocating for safe supply of drugs, 
right? And the reality is, is that we're probably not that far apart, but we can't get past, especially them, can't get past their ideology. Like, I'm more willing to listen. It's like, look, man, you want to have a consumption site? I'll make the trade-off, but let's put a detox center next to it. How about that? Can, can you work with me on that? No, no, we can't do that. We can't try to coerce anybody towards treatment. Okay, well, then I'm cool with passing out with passing out clean needles to people to stop the spread of HIV and, and AIDS. Can we, uh, can we stop passing out pipes, foil, and straws because that's actually enabling? Well, no, no, no. There's a 0.001% chance that somebody could get hepatitis C from sharing a pipe. So we have to give it out. And I'm just kind of like, are you guys, like, have you become that nihilistic and that kind of narrow-minded that this is, this is where you've come? And then they'll turn around and they'll, they'll say, well, you know, you're just a, and I don't, I don't mean to swear. I don't know if I can. Go for it. Go. Okay. Good. They'll turn around and say that, you know, I'm a fucking piece of shit and that I'm a bully and that, that, that I'm misrepresenting homelessness and that I'm a drug dealer and all this stuff, right. To try to stigmatize and bully their way through the conversation because they don't have a leg to stand on. It's like a really, really radical approach that is employing bully tactics. And that to me is just, I, 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 I'm repulsed by it. So instead of like coming forward saying, Hey, why don't you convince me and we can maybe meet in the middle and shake hands. Instead, it's like, if you don't believe us, I'm going to hit you over the head with a hammer and fuck you. And that's kind of where we where we're at. So, you know, so instead of us working together, we're lobbing grenades at each other. And, um, and it's just ugly. And what's sad is that they, they're holding the narrative in this country right now. Um, the Drug Policy Alliance gets you know, all kinds of funding. They got some big Soros grant a few years ago, you know, $50 million and all that stuff. And here I am just like this low-key advocate in San Francisco that doesn't have any money. And I'm sitting here like, you know, shaking the foundations of it. And it just kind of goes to show you the power of, of, you know, people power and the power of advocacy can really make a difference. But... Yes, I agree with you that the winds are starting to change slowly around this as we see this uh, crisis continue to unfold. My husband and some of my closest friends just got back from a trial in San Francisco. And according to them, this Chesaboudin recall has had a huge impact on the city. And then, of course, you all seem to have gotten the memo and you got rid of your school board. Um, And they're saying it's it's pretty close to where it was. It's, it's back to its great glory. Do you have any sense of how San Francisco has changed at all since the recall of Chesaboudin? So I, I think he's painting maybe a little rosier picture of what's happening, but yes, there's been a marked improvement since July, since Brooke Jenkins took over. And some of that is just the rhetoric of what she's saying, but also some of it is that, you know, her, her office, the district attorney's office is now cooperating with the police. They actually have a plan now moving forward uh, along with the mayor's office. They're all in agreement on how to approach, uh, you know, organized drug dealing on the street. And it's starting to slowly have an impact. Um, I don't, you know, maybe some of the health approaches are helping a little bit too, but, you know, part of this whole thing too is that they're continuing to bring more housing online. So there's a collective effort by everyone to try to stem the crisis, but that's also a tacit admission that the crisis had spun completely out of control under the previous administration as well. And we should never, ever, ever let Chase Bodine or any of his psycho fans back into power in the city because they drove the city into a ditch, which we are now slowly trying to dig out of. Um, San Francisco is, is a dichotomy, okay? Uh, the, one of the, a good way I can explain is that Saturday night I was on 16th Street between Valencia and Guerrero at um, the, the San Francisco Short Film Festival because a documentary I was in was being shown, so I was there. And afterwards I was waiting for my ride uh, standing out by the bus stop on 16th and Valencia Street. And, you know, there was a couple of bars with people out drinking. The movie theater was right there glowing in neon, restaurants across the street. And it kind of felt like, you know, man, I remember 20 years ago when I used to be out here. And uh, it, it, it kind of felt great for a minute. And then I turned around and I, and I got blown in the back in the face by the smell of urine. And there was a dude standing at the bus stop about five feet away from me smoking fentanyl. So it's just, there's that dichotomy. It's like, yes, we're alive, but yes, we have this tremendous crisis and it's still there uh, facing us. And 
you know, things might look better in the day because we have all the city workers out there on the street, the street ambassadors, but I promise you, they all go home at seven o'clock at night. Uh, what happens at night in those neighborhoods, if you go there, if you drive through the Tenderloin at 10 o'clock at night, yeah, it's not that the problem's so much better, it's that they, it's like put, putting a pebble on a pond and they've pushed everything to the edges and then at night it comes back. <laughs> so if you were in charge of a Portland or a San Francisco, what would you do? What policies would you implement? So I would, I would you know, start just making some trade-offs. This crisis, homelessness and the drugs, is all about trade-offs. We're never going to stop all the drugs. Prohibition, that ship has sailed many, many years ago, so it's just about trying to mitigate the damage. I would really focus and do what Brooke Jenkins is doing right now, our new DA, and focus on holding drug dealers accountable. Um, that has to be one thing. Uh, increasing our treatment space, i.e. bringing in any partner that wants to open an addiction treatment facility in San Francisco, bringing them in, giving them funding, and getting them open and up and running, and supporting organizations that want to do that. And then expanding our drug court a great deal, like committing five or six judges to the drug court and having and start using it. And yes, we're going to have to coerce some people into drug treatment. That is one of the answers to it. Okay. The other answer, obviously, is housing. I still agree. I'm a supporter of building more affordable housing, but we also have to build navigation shelters, uh, centers or homeless shelters, and we have to build them in other neighborhoods, too. I know people don't like that, um, but the way I look at it is that San Francisco is a beautiful city, but right now it's kind of like a giant shit sandwich, and everybody's going to have to take a bite out of it. Um, that's kind of before it gets better. That's the way I kind of see it right now, um, and if we don't, start mandating people into treatment, if we don't start holding drug dealers accountable, if we don't start holding people that are stealing from Walgreens accountable to support their drug habit, the problem is not going to go away. Our downtown is not going to recover to to the way it was before. We must change our model because of all the commercial real estate that's sitting empty, and we're going to lose all that tax revenue. And whatever we do, we have to act fast because because of what I just said, two fiscal years from now, San Francisco is going to be in huge financial trouble because our downtown did not recover post-pandemic. Okay? People need to realize that we are going to lose hundreds of millions of dollars of tax revenue over the next two fiscal years. So while we have the money, which is now, we better do something about it. And what's sad is that we have a billion dollars over the next two years to use. And out of that billion dollars, it's going to produce 3,000 units of housing, which is great. But for a billion dollars, only 3,000 units of housing, which shows you how daunting the task is to build new housing in the state of California and in San Francisco. So we need to look for some interim solutions in between, like expanding the shelter space, drug treatment, detox facilities, and we have to use every tool available to us, including police and the criminal justice system. So I have some friends, Kevin Dahlgren and Andrea Suarez, and they're Friends of the show, I met them through doing a podcast with them on this show. And they will say, Michael Schellenberger is actually on the board of their organizations. They will say that in regard to the people that we see and hear with our eyes and ears as we're walking around in San Francisco and Portland and Seattle, Andrea is primarily based in Seattle, is Housing First doesn't work for them. Housing First works great for people who want services, for people who are currently in shelters, for mama working five jobs. Housing first is not great for schizophrenics or people in the throes of severe drug addiction because Andrea and Kevin are saying, you give these people keys, they'll be right back out on the sidewalk the next day, either because they just don't have the mental faculties or because they have to find a way to get money for drugs. You know, it's tough. The way I explained it the other day to somebody is that housing first, if implemented perfectly, I mean, absolutely perfectly could work if implemented perfectly, but it that's like impossible. So this plan, this housing first plan is basically the perfect getting in the way of good, right? So the plan isn't being implemented to perfection. As a result, it's failing because it's not being implemented to perfection. And I think Kevin and Andrea would say you can't do housing first perfectly. You right. can't. It's governmental bureaucracy. Right. 
So we're not Finland. We're not Finland. You know, Finland. It, it, housing first works in Finland because first of all, there's only four thousand homeless people in the whole country. Number one. Okay. Number two, the majority of their of their permanent supportive housing happens to be run, ironically, by the Salvation Army, which is kind of funny. Uh, and then third, they have seven staff for every twenty-one residents in their in their permanent supportive housing. When I worked as a case manager in permanent supportive housing in San Francisco, there were three case managers for 105 residents. You, you understand? So when they talk about it's about housing and services, there's no services, folks. That's all a big bunch of bullshit. Okay? They try. They contract out to these nonprofits, but they're not able to keep people employed. And then the services that they offer are questionable at best anyway. Like we try to help, but man, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a therapist. I'm just a case manager making 24 bucks an hour. You know, you're asking an awful lot of me to help support 45 people as my caseload in this permanent supportive housing unit, most of which have either untreated mental illness or drug addiction or both. So, it, yeah. So, you know, when we think of it that way, it doesn't work. Right. Do I support housing? Sure. If you want to build all the affordable housing in the world, knock yourself out. That's fine. In fact, the state of California could. We have the money. We have a $97 billion budget surplus. It would cost $88 billion to build 160,000 new units of housing. Why doesn't Governor Newsom do it? If he's such a big, bad progressive, why doesn't he build that housing? Because he has no intention of doing it. That's why. That's the reality. Why is that the reality? Because there's no return on that investment because most of the people that you're going to house are people that are medically indigent, that are on disability, on SSI, that are elderly. There's no return on your investment. So, you know, and the federal government doesn't want to play a landlord anymore. They don't, they're not, they don't want to be in public housing anymore. They just want to give out vouchers. So what's the point? So I guess these housing first advocates would obviously say housing stabilizes you and it allows you to get a job and it allows you to have a shower and it allows you to get to a point where you can clean up and maybe at some point you'll get around to wanting to get off drugs or take your Seroquel or do whatever you need to do. I mean, look, housing gives you, it stabilizes you. I agree. Okay, it can it can help stabilize you, but it doesn't address the deeper issue. Do you know how many guys that I had on my caseload in permanent supportive housing that would not go to their mental health clinic for treatment because because they thought they were being followed around and someone was spying on them through their through their phone, so they wouldn't go. It's like, come on, guys, you got to be real about this stuff. And so, until people actually that have real lived experience can come in here and tell all these academics that keep writing all these papers and saying all this stuff publicly about this, of how it really is. Um, we're never going to get anywhere. And I can't think of another city in the United States where it's failing more miserably than San Francisco. So what do we have to do instead? We have to create alternatives in the interim, which are more shelters, drug treatment, detox, not just supervised injection sites and and free drugs, which is what they really want to do, because that you're just going to kill people. In the end, they're just going to die anyway. But if you really want to support wellness and get people better and give them a chance at a new life, you have to support recovery and treatment as as an eventual solution to this. So, what if we do shelter first, housing earned? Uh, absolutely. Look, so you know the, the old term shelter first, housing earned. Schellenberger says that. I agree. I mean, look, the bottom line is on into housing, that would be great because within that safe space, we can start to address the other trauma that they have, which is addiction, mental illness, etc. If you just drop them into an old dilapidated hotel where the elevator doesn't work, infested with in a methadone psychosis, that is not conducive. But isn't that their argument against shelter? Like shelters are dirty, shelters are they don't let us take pets. They don't let us take uh, boyfriends or girlfriends. They don't, they, they have rules. They have barriers. They make us pray. So I hear that argument all the time that, you know, look, shelters need to be say that the shelters in New York are great because they're not. Okay. But they do have shelter. And I promise you the 90,000 people that sleep inside a shelter every night in New York city have it better than if they were sleeping in the snow in the winter on a, in a tent on the streets of New York. It's the same thing in Portland. It should be, it should be the same thing in Seattle and the same thing in San Francisco. We need right to shelter laws in our, in our collective states and cities. We need to then build out the shelter system to accommodate all of those who are homeless. And then we need to actually make people use them. 
enforce camping bans on the street to get them inside, and then we can work to transition them into housing. Look, the wait for permanent supportive housing in San Francisco right now is three years. So if you fill out one of those housing assessment forms at the linkage center, you, you might get a call three years from now if you're not dead from drug overdose, right? And what are you supposed to do in that three years? Live on the street? Stay in a tent? Yeah, sure, the Coalition on Homeless will come give you a tent and a sleeping bag and make you as comfortable as possible so long as you stay there. And I have a huge problem with that, right? We need to meet people where they're at, that cliche that the harm reduction folks say, we need to meet people where they're at. Yeah, well, I always say, let's meet them where they're at, but let's not leave them there. Let's pick them up and take them somewhere safe where they're not on the street. I've stayed in shelters myself. I've been in jail myself. I've slept on a piece of cardboard on the street myself. And I promise you that a shelter is better than the other two options. Okay, it's better than the street. And these people say that I'm safer on the street. No, you're freer on the street. Not about what the facts are. These are the facts. But when you're in a shelter, there's rules. But you have to wait till the morning to go out to use your drugs. Um, so if you just look at the facts again and weigh the facts and people are like, well, I got assaulted in a shelter. Yeah, there's assaults. But you know what? You've never been assaulted on the street. I don't know. I didn't know a woman when I was homeless on the street who's never assaulted. Okay, I just want to make that clear. So that's a bunch of crap because you're leaving the most vulnerable, extremely vulnerable on the street to assaults, especially sexual assaults, and I have a huge problem with that. Right? And they'll, they'll, oh, they'll just justify it away with some other statistic or study or data. If I, if I have if you sleep on the street, have you ever seen someone get sexually assaulted and try to stop them and get your ass kicked? Have you ever seen someone get every situation? But when it comes to homelessness and drugs, it matters that I have lived experience, but people like me that don't agree. The public health all put together to solve this problem. Tom Wolf, thanks so much for coming on. You're one of my heroes. Congratulations on your sobriety, getting your life back, getting your family back. That's an absolutely incredible achievement. And you managed to go to hell and back. And you're doing all this service for others and you're educating people like myself and and people in the general public about homelessness and addiction in a really powerful way i really appreciate you please everybody go to tom wolf's website go to his twitter platform which is where you can also find a fair amount of really good information his handle is t wolf Recovery, T-W-O-L-F-R-E-C-O-V-E-R-Y. He also has a YouTube channel that is linked to his website. And his website is www.tomwolf.org. There's so much to learn on there. This man is truly amazing and inspiring. Tom, thank you so much again. And I'm so glad that we finally did this. Everybody who's been begging me to have Tom on the podcast, thank you for pushing me and reminding me to do it because Tom's one of my heroes also and is just a really fabulous guy who's just trying to help other people, trying to help other homeless people and people on the streets who are just like him. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Rational in Portland.